0: And welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Life is so much better when I can see the birds in my bird feeder from my standing podcast setup. Tufted to Tipmouse just flew away. Where was I? That's right. I was introducing our guest. Super excited about our guest today. We've been trying to get her to come on for like years. This is going to be great. Before we introduce her, I want to make sure we also reference the other host on this podcast. We have me, of course, Richard Litower. Hi. Never doing that again. And then we have Justin Dorfman. Justin, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great. I'm really looking forward to this. Ashley's awesome, and this is gonna be a really great conversation.
0: Oops, that is right. Ashley is our guest today. No, it's okay. It's cool. We'll roll (laughs) with it. We'll roll with it. Ashley Williams, otherwise known on the internet as ag underscore dubs or ag A G-Dubs, one of them is our guest. Ashley is the founder and CEO of AXO, which I've just learned is short for AXO, which is super, super cool. Those are the weird fringe salamanders from Central America. Super fun. AXO is based in Austin, Texas, where Ashley is calling in from. Ashley, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing all right. I will correct you slightly. To say AXO is based in Austin would be a little silly because I'm the only person in the U.S. who works at the company. We've got two folks in Berlin and one person in Canada. So we're all over. Very open source style of us, right? (laughs)
0: Exciting. This is cool. Let's just jump right into it. What is Exo doing?
2: So the way I have pitched it to investors and kind of talked about it is I call it the tool company for tool companies. I have worked at several companies and oftentimes I get hired to do what I would call the same job. And I used to be blowing people's minds when I called this developer experience. Now the term developer experience is incredibly old hat, but it turns out that there's a ton of infrastructure operations and other work that you need to do when you're building dev tools. And when you run a developer experience team, you don't get the infra team. So what is the supporting platform for building out those developer tools? So that is what we want to build. Just instead of me doing it one company, I was like, why don't I make it? something that I can give to many companies.
0: That sounds amazing. That sounds kind of similar to maintainer. And I think that would make sense because we also come from very similar backgrounds in some ways. We both were community managers. And at some point we're like, I could do this for multiple projects. This is not rocket science, but people think it is, which is great because that means I can inflate my own salary. Moving on. (laughs) Why does Ashley have this background? Well, let's talk a bit more about Ashley by reading her bio. Ashley is a former member of the Rust core team. She is the founder of the Rust Foundation and serves as its first executive director. So done a lot of Rustation work in the past. Leader of crates.io infrastructure, community teams, WebAssembly, all sorts of stuff. Before that, she was a leader of the Node.js Community Committee, ComCom, the ill-fated and beautiful ComCom. You want to hear more about that? Go listen to Tracy Hines, Hacky Go Lucky on Twitter. We had her on this podcast as well. So go check that out at Node Foundation, now OpenJS. And Ashley has worked at NPM, Mozilla and Cloudflare. And done more stuff before that. So basically, Ashley, you've been around for a long time. Now there's so much to talk about. Where do I start? Node was a while ago. We all know Node comcom had its ups, it had its downs, trying to build a community committee <laughs> for Yes. I think the intent to build a committee to talk about community is amazing. I think that the heart was there.
2: It was one of those moments you have where you're like, I know that doing it led to something positive that happened in the future, but it's too bad that I didn't get to exist in that space when the positive outcome happened later.
0: Well, then let's talk about that. So you moved from the Node ecosystem to Rust. Can you tell me what you wanted to take into the community there from the lessons you learned at Node? How did you want to build a great community of frustrations?
2: One of the... First things I'll start with is something that a colleague of mine in Rust, Florian Gilcher, likes to say. There's no one community, it's communities. And I think that was probably one of the biggest misunderstandings, I think, in Node, was this attempt to create a singular community when it was fighting against that at all (laughs) costs. I mean, it's tough to talk about each of these communities. Separate, like what was kind of happening in the general open source zeitgeist, because Node in 2015 versus like Rust in 2018, the ideas of codes of conduct were like anathema in 2015. And then by like 2018, it was like assumed, oh, is code of conduct even a good idea? Like that whole ship sailed. And so I think what was considered the baseline was moving like independently of what these communities were doing. And then, of course, Rust had the ability to kind of, and I talk about this every time I talk about Rust, it really helps when you can look at everyone who came before and then build a community in a way that reacts to it. So I was able to look at communities and go, oh, all right, we should have interaction guidelines. Like we should be aiming to have like better focus on diversity and inclusion. And so, I mean, I don't think I brought that to Rust. I think that that is something that Rust kind of did when Rust showed up. And one of the first commits to Rust was a code of conduct. And honestly, when I joined Rust, my hope was to kind of avoid community work entirely. Actually, I got super burnt out of community work and Node and Also, everyone just kept throwing it in my face that I like wasn't technical. And I was like, well, if I wasn't so busy doing all of this other stuff, yeah, maybe I'd commit some code. And so when I joined Rust, I was really focused on just writing code. One of my first contributions was working on a toy operating system and like, oh, how can we like do an intro to operating systems? That's really, really fun. I don't know if you've all have ever seen the operating systems wiki, but it has this absolutely awful Intro section that's about like pre required knowledge. And it's like, if you don't think like this is for you, then this is for you. And it's intricate knowledge of hexadecimal. And you're like, okay, I hate this. And I mean, doing empowering educational tech work like that, I think is a type of community work, but people seem to like you more when you do it. And it involves committing code or saying the word operating system. But I got pulled into it, I think, kind of classically, the same way I get pulled into management jobs. I think when you build a community in reaction to something, when you stop reacting to that thing, it's like hard to figure out like what you do next and how you grow it. And you're very much defined in a negative way. And that can make it hard to find your own identity and calling. And I think a lot of what Rust is was defined very reactionary. And so a lot of what has been built is super awesome. But... I think it really struggled to kind of turn that into its own thing instead of like a reaction to stuff. And I think you can see that now. Like, I think it's like every other day that like there's some Rust C++ blow up and uh, I don't know. There's a lot of that stuff, but like there's a fair amount in Rust, I think, around its community presence that has defined it, that is struggling to scale and struggling to figure out what it does when it's not just defining itself as better than all the other things that came before it.
0: I think we see that a lot in the lifecycle of open source, where like someone built a project to scratch their own itch. The project functions, you get like to a 1.0 or something. And after that, it's, well, I don't need to do this anymore. It did the thing and now I'm a maintainer. And like, I don't want to have to deal with classic iterations. I want to move on to the next problem that I have. I solved the problem. There's a whole lot of things where you get to a stage of maturity where you're no longer reacting to an an issue. And now you have other issues. And it's like, I don't want to deal with those other issues. I wanted to go on on a beach and have a good time on this beach. Maybe bring a book. Sounds nice, right? So one of the things I'm actually curious about, we talked about community and how you get pigeonholed as the community person, which is the worst speaking as one. I've been there. I well,
2: want to be one, which is horrible because I think I'm like actually pretty good at it, but I'm just like sick of people hating me for it.
0: <laughs> it makes me feel like I'm that guy in the Bible who Jesus sent all the souls of the pigs into or out of because it's like I'm a community person. Does that mean I contain multitudes? Because that's cool, but sometimes I just want to be one person and not like representing every single possible thing.
2: I feel if I need to read the Bible because I don't know about the pig souls. Some cool gems in there, cool gems. Never heard that. Yeah, I'm going to have to Google that. Let's get a link in there in the notes.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of positions of authority and authoritative text, at some point you moved from code of conduct or whatever to actually building the Rust Foundation, which you probably did because you wanted Rust to have a sustainable long-term financial plan for itself. Can you talk a bit about that process and why a foundation was necessary?
2: So all of this is very delicate and we have a short amount of time. So for folks listening who go, that's a gross generalization. Yes, I agree. There's an intense amount of subtlety here. And whenever you're talking about open source foundations and the question why, you definitely have a federation of people who have a collection of answers to that question why, and they are not always aligned. That being said, the idea of forming a foundation for Rust is a very, very old. I feel like people have been talking about it before I even joined, and I joined it before 1.0. This has been like something that people have been always batting around. And I'll admit that when I was privy to the conversations around a foundation, I always told people, I said, wait, it's way worse to have a foundation too early than having a foundation too late. And so I think that we probably formed a foundation about a year late. My personal opinion on that. And I think that that's good because you can see some of it like kind of spilling out on Twitter, but like forming a foundation and creating that type of formal governance Sitting on top of the project governance and knowing the governance debt that we have there, it adds a lot of complication to things. And I think it's made some things just very tough for the project. Some things I can talk about, some things I definitely can't talk about. And so like the real urgency around forming the foundation ultimately came from the fact that, so Rust was jamming along, like doing really, really well. And then Mozilla, for reasons completely unrelated to like the performance of the language or the Rust team that was there, Mozilla needed to do a reorg that involved, you know, letting go a lot of foundational members of Rust governance that were employed by Mozilla. Now, it's worth mentioning that Rust was not even really the intellectual property of Mozilla or run by Mozilla in any capacity at the time when this happened, but The thing that's worth noting is that what is true and what people perceive to be true are very different. And so people really understood Mozilla to be the guardian of the Rust project. And so when Mozilla had this large change, it really made a lot of other companies that had just started adopting Rust in really serious ways, very, very, very nervous. It made them very upset. And so... As a member of the core team, like we were getting like a lot of communication about is Rust going to survive? And for us, it was just, okay, everybody who's working on Rust is still working on (laughs) Rust. Nothing like formally changed for us, but the perception changed. And so one of the things that was really important was to like kind of try and figure out Mozilla owned the Rust trademark. So we did need some type of legal organization to own those things. But we also needed to form an organization that would help people continued to believe that the project was stable and taken care of and moving forward. And that because of the kind of origins of the project and people's kind of belief of it being like kind of solely governed by Mozilla, with them kind of out of the picture in a very like public way, we needed to kind of create an institution that would be in that spot. I'll also say as a member of governance at that time, like we had been feeling like A ton of reasons why it would be very useful to have a legal organization. I think one of those is, and this is something that nobody, the register did not write an article about this, but I really wish that people had recognized this, is that over the period of time from 1.0 to like 2019, and then we formed the foundation like 2020, during a pandemic, mind you, I can't even begin to tell you some of the things that made that really difficult, but... The core team of the Rust language went from being basically 100% Mozilla employees to almost 100% at least people who were being paid full time to work on Rust to almost 100% volunteers. Wow. At the time when we formed the foundation, there was two and a half people employed specifically just to work on open source at the time, but not really even. So like, The core team had moved into almost a purely volunteer role and that had changed a lot of things, both from the community perception, the core team's perception of itself. And so I think something that was like very interesting and also was like a big part in us wanting to form the foundation is we had been starting to really feel the pinch of this is a massive project with massive legs, huge set of people that we have to manage and We don't have the time if we're going to be like also making money to be able to do this. I quit my job actually to start working on the Rust Foundation just because even setting the foundation up itself was a full-time job and I did not get paid to do that work. But yeah, there was not really a choice. I think if a foundation was going to happen, whether or not the project's governance participated in it. And so we were like, all right, we're going to do this.
1: You mentioned earlier the nervousness that some organizations had. And what's interesting is I listened to a podcast about Java and how a lot of companies like Java because it doesn't move as fast as Rust and Node and all these other languages. What was it that made the organizations calm again? Because I can imagine them being like, okay, do we cut our losses now or do we wait? Why did they wait? Why did they stick with the organization?
2: So kind of like organizations were nervous about the future of Rust and like what made them calm about it again. There's an assumption there that they're calm. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think the first one was having a legal entity that owned the trademark and functionally owned the intellectual property. That's a gross generalization. You can go read how Rust is licensed and how copyright works with contributions and stuff. In general, the idea that there was a group that was kind of like handling that legal element of it. And I think also that it was a 501c6 organization that they could participate in and they could have a person on the board. I think that was really important.
0: Your phrase governance debt to me just was like electrifying. I'm just still happy about that phrase. Can we have governance debt info? Like, can I we please that. buy that website and just fill it full of cool information?
2: The information will be horrible and sad, but sure.
0: That's okay. (laughs) That's okay. Because horrible and sad are problems and we are engineers. We enjoy fixing problems. One of the questions I have for you while you're talking, you're talking about building a foundation and it's so similar to other conversations I've heard from Eva from PSF, Deb from PSF, not so much Karen from Software Predicting Services. They got covered, but certainly Node, talking about with Tracy, talking about how that works. looking at the history of foundations in general. And at this niggling little question, which is kind of weird, which you mentioned, I had to take time off and do this work because I didn't get paid. And it's like, well, why didn't you just go to a VC firm and have them do it? Why did you have to go to the 501c6? I work for 501c6 and I often wonder why nots.org. Tell us a bit about what the difference is for you and why one is better for open source software sustainability.
2: There's an assumption in there, I think that, one is better. So one aspect of better is that it is more palatable to people who have money. And so I think if someone were to form a corporation, the large companies, say like the Fang companies, even Mozilla, for example, I don't think that they would have participated. I know when I was doing the original fundraising for the membership of the Rust Foundation, I actually got a lot of pushback that we didn't join the Linux Foundation. People investing foundations really, really want it to look like something they've already seen. Now, admittedly, every practitioner likes that. I love to say ergonomics is 80% familiarity, <laughs> and it appears to be like true also for organizations that are doing fundraising. So is it better for sustainability? If the first ingredient of sustainability is money, then like, there are certainly elements of it that make it better. Is the structure itself better? I'm not convinced. Personally, I have my own kind of theories about why the generation of open source organizations that was kind of heralded by the Linux Foundation has ultimately not achieved its goal of maintaining open source, but rather the goal of that Linux Foundation generation was to get corporations to use open source which in a way is the opposite of making it sustainable because it adds an incredible burden (laughs) that's peak into that little thought process. And so I think in many ways, 501c6 organizations are like almost the opposite of sustainability for open source because they often band together a lot of people who are users. And you have to hope that your users want to help give back to your maintainers, but it's not like a shared ownership thing. And I mean, this goes back to what I did With board composition for the Rust Foundation was it felt very important to me that the project be represented on the board and not just like a one-off director seat, like community role, because I've done that before and it was miserable and it didn't work at all. I think that's the one thing the Node Foundation and I agree on was that role was not set up for success. So the way the Rust Foundation board is set up is that there's a set of project directors, but regardless of how many company directors are added, like they sell X number of platinum member seats, et cetera, the project directors always have 50% of the vote, which is not something I'm familiar with in any other open source foundation. And when I got involved in open source foundations, I was kind of horrified to discover how little power the project actually had. In these things. And if these organizations are designed to be supporting those folks, them not having a seat at the table that represents anything that could threaten a majority is to me lip service. That's one thing that I tried to do to like tip the scales there. I mean, it is ultimately a charity. The people who are participating and producing that work aren't at the table for how that's getting done. And I don't think charity is the same as sustainability. Because some people do think charity can be a route to sustainability, and I do not.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons why large philanthropies often give seed grants but don't want to fund for long periods of time, because then you're just looking for the next grant over and over and over again. Let's talk about getting the means of production back in the hands of the workers. So that's kind of what you were saying with 50% of the people. I mean, really, I mean...
2: I didn't say Marx. I tried
0: really hard. I didn't say marks either. I'm just pointing out that you're talking about getting the people who actually have a stake in the game to actually have a vote and what happens to them in the future, which a 501c6 can do. In some situations, because the 501c6 doesn't have to actually demand governance from your members and so on. Again, I'm speaking through the clouded lens of my own involvement in open source collective, which is a 501c6, it represents 3,000 projects, but we don't have the same buy-in as say this the CNCF. Linux Foundation is much more no, you're going to act this way, you're going to have a stall over here. Even if they don't say that, that's definitely what it comes off as and how it ends up going. I want to know, how do you think? Open source projects should best position themselves in the future to continue to have stake in their own governance and then their own sustainability, if not through the foundation 501 C6 model, which tends towards monetization of, say, money coming from Ospos. Where do you think people should be investing their time?
2: I mean, I think the first thing is that you have to really figure out what you want and you have to ask yourself why on earth you are doing this in the first place. And... I think the whole world would benefit if more people just did that reflection more often, like meditation is really good and we should all do that. And then based on what those goals are, I think the paths can be different. I mean, some people aren't interested in control or perhaps that's what they'll tell themselves. I think that's something difficult. I feel a lot of open source and the origins of open source had a lot to do with end user control and also producer control. So what I'm doing is I went and I raised venture capital and I started a company. And I know for sure that is not necessarily the right path for everybody. I'm an impossible like systems thinker. And so now I'm getting like really tied up in like all the different systems of incentives I can think
0: of. Question to my <laughs> clarify this maybe. Okay, um,
2: yeah, go for it.
0: <laughs> so meditation is great. I think we should all be Dominic Taro sailing on a sailboat, having a good time thinking about what we really want out of the world. I think it'd probably be a better world. However, it's tough. It's tough to have those conversations, and it's really tough when you have a community of people who are already invested in a product that they're working on, in a project that they really are invested in, whether it's a GitHub repo or a foundation or something large like a company. So after one meditates, one inevitably has to get up and eat food, and one inevitably has these weird Western urgings to be productive and to go out there and do stuff. So there's always going to be this tension question I have for you is given your amazing experience and your long time dealing with people who are angry because they don't know what they want and they're trying to figure it out, what's the best way for a project to have a conversation with each other about setting goals and intentions for their project? How would you have people sit down to talk to each other to say, where do we want this project to go? Because that's where I feel this often breaks down. We all agree that we should really have some self-reflection time, but Figuring out how to get people at the table to talk about those things in a way that isn't alienating is hard. So I'm curious if you have any tips.
2: I think it's really hard. I mean, you said it earlier before, and I believe it's an Eric S. Raymond quote, and I am not a real big fan of that person. But yeah, a lot of people do open source to scratch their own itch. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that when you start trying to sit people down and figure out what goals are and stuff, what you're looking for are like, Collective goals and like shared goals and shared vision. In the Ruskov 2018 keynote, I think me and a couple of my colleagues phrased it as trying to get people to itch the same way. I don't think that you're really going to get a lot of people to have the same shared goal. <laughs> I think that that's really, really, really difficult. There's plenty of ways to do it. I think the key is really investing in communication and honestly, like brand and marketing having really strong communication brand and marketing helps drive that shared collective vision. And I think that Rust had really fantastic marketing for a really, really long time. And I think that helped drive the community to have as much of a shared vision as is possible in a group of software engineers, which I think is very difficult.
0: People don't like like that. It's a massive... Thanks for <laughs> me to plug this is saying open source design podcast because we have a whole podcast based around design and like having a shared design really helps people be like this is our shared vision and designers spend all of their time figuring out what is the person really being when they say schnuflendorf project. What do they mean when they say so like maybe we should just talk to them more. I don't know.
2: I mean, a lot of software engineers are like, oh, marketing, it's like inauthentic. It like doesn't really understand the technology that we're using. And I'm like, "Okay, but, you know, also at the scale that we need to communicate at right now, all those technical details are actually very useless and potentially harmful because they're going to get away from like the general position that we're trying to communicate.
1: Those are the same people that have their laptops covered with stickers.
2: Yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. Stickers are a great point. I think one of the reasons that a lot of projects really struggle, especially ones that have succeeded over a long period of time as the result of an effort of a set of people, which is a lot most open source projects. I think more than other types of organizations, I see people tying their identity to their work in open source from both the producer side and the user side. And that makes this shared collective vision and goals thing even harder. Because when you've won, if you realize that you don't have the same goals, it feels like an attack on your identity, which people usually respond very poorly to. But then also like you'll have factions form and then you're kind of recreate the identity politics subculture, which can get really complicated. And there's not been an open source project I have participated in that didn't have that problem. And I would share that I had that problem. I tied my identity to my work in open source a ton and my life has gotten so much better since I stopped doing that. But when you stop doing that, giving away almost all of your free time for free is very hard to do. So that's why I think a lot of these things are tied together and open source is a weird amplification of these problems that you see in other areas. If you want people to have a shared vision and a shared goal, with something that they tie super closely to their identity and spend all of their free time doing, you have added urgency and personalization to an already complex problem. And so, working on that at scale—that's just capital H hard. That's hard <laughs> to do. <it. laughs> there are ways to do it, but I definitely am in a moment where. I feel like a return to something like potentially smaller and more local is probably a better idea. If what you're trying to maximize is individual happiness.
1: Which is important for sustainability. You're going to burn out and it doesn't do anyone any good.
0: One of the problems with open source is that we have this. It's a human system and human systems suck because humans are really bad at making systems and really bad at working with each other and really bad at understanding themselves just like across the board. We're also really good at it. I put on my trousers today. I didn't have to think about that because I've done it before. I'm able to like abstract and make these really awesome routines like wearing clothes. And that's awesome. But when it comes down to wearing the right sort with other people and oh no, my hair looks stupid, then it becomes difficult because other people are hard. Open source, other people are hard could be a good tagline for like a movie or something.
2: I mean, I think there's also, and we haven't talked about this, but it wouldn't be a good open source podcast without talking about this. Uh I think there's an inherent contradiction in like, the incentives behind open source. And I mean, that's why it's probably dealt with, like experience the growth it has because contradicts like a lack of balance helps drive excessive growth generally. I don't know if open source wants to be sustained. (laughs) Part of this is like people do open source, you say, to scratch their own itch, do a thing that makes them individually happy. But then why do they keep doing it? Usually it's the opposite of that. Usually they keep doing it because of impact they want to have impact. So that like initial reason they do something is almost immediately thrown in the bin and then they go for something else. Usually that is a exact opposite of that initial thing where doing it to have impact on a larger group of other people often will make them individually unhappy.
0: <laughs> we should think- more effectively label our projects and talk about what we're doing when we're doing it. Hey, this is a starter project. I'm doing in scratch itch. Hey, this is a project where I'm trying to not be a maintainer anymore. Well, yeah, yeah that that it, means.
1: it always starts off as the first commit. And then what happens after that is no one knows. You know, it could become this huge project. It could be this hobby project. It could be nothing. So there's really no telling.
2: So in 2018, I left NPM to join Mozilla for a contractorship to help build out the Rust WebAssembly tool chain. It was extremely exciting for me. I was super amped. And I ended up building this tool called Wasm Pack, which was, I mean, I think still is today used by a lot of people, but it's used a lot less because it went through this period of being dead. I think one of the first things to note is like I had a contractorship at Mozilla to work on it and then that ended and I had to go get another job. And so my ability to keep working on that project was severely hampered, but I did my best to work on that project. And the thing is, is I was really in love with this project. It's one of the first like really public Rust projects I worked on. I was really excited about it. So it started becoming really clear to me that one, this project had legs. Two, I had built it out of this Rust WebAssembly working group, which had kind of collapsed. And I talked about governance debt earlier, how working groups work is a type of governance debt in Rust. Someone will be mad at me for saying that, but I feel like it's obvious. I don't think I'm blowing anyone's mind. with Fair enough. So the group, had kind of dissolved. There wasn't really anybody to hand it off to. And so it was just kind of like there. And it's like, what do I do? And like out of just love of the project, I like worked really, really hard to try and do it myself. And then I finally was like, I'm not going to be able to do that. Maybe I'll do Twitter and I'll do a call for maintainers. But then just trying to cat herd all of those people and then all the documentation I hadn't done about how I was maintaining it. It was like almost more work to be able to hand it off. And then, of course... As somebody who had worked at NPM, I'm deeply familiar with the, oh, you have a really popular project that a ton of people use and embed in their build systems. You want to just hand that to a rando that said that they had time to work on it? I was like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'd rather it just die than do that. And I'll be honest. To this day, people are mad at me for this and will just like show up on Reddit and say that I'm like an egomaniacal fascist for not handling that in a good way and giving it away but like whoever said that they wanted to maintain it. And I don't know, did I make the right call? Like, I sort of feel like I do, but I also I'm like haunted by the project constantly. It like makes me really sad whenever I think about it. I love that project so much. I don't know, like, I think you can have a group of a lot of people who want to do the right thing. I mean, a lot of these stories end with that maintainer getting hired. But like for all the ones that don't, what happens?
1: It's a great point.
2: I think you just kind of get stuck. And I'll use this very small moment as like a cheap way of saying, pay attention to the types of open source maintainers that are getting hired versus the ones that aren't because there are some patterns that no one should be proud of.
0: I just had this massive image of someone putting a manifest in their document, two legs standing in a vast desert. Because it kind of is Ozymandias, like all of these projects, look upon my work and despair at what happened. Yeah, things naturally rise and fall. And it's tough. And there is a lot of invective thrown around about project maintainers who either give up their project or don't give up their project or move on to build a working group or find out that that doesn't work very well. And they get blamed for doing that. That happened to Mike McQuaid. It's just like constantly over and over again, there's all these different reactions in open source. And I think it comes back to meditation or people systems, trying to figure out how to not judge yourself too much for doing what you need to do and working with the best efforts that you have and talking to people and listening is the most important thing that one can do. Where can we learn about EXO? Where can we get involved? Is it open source?
2: There's elements of it that are open source. I mean, we didn't even like really talk about this. So you had mentioned what I had written in the document earlier about open source not being the communist utopia I was hoping it would be. Yeah, my politics are extremely lefty. I feel really strongly about that. I raised venture capital and it was refreshing. The first thing they told me was like, you should pay yourself. And I was like, Awesome. I come from a world where the idea of paying yourself or even giving yourself credit is considered bad. And it's just, wow, I've been living in that way for so long. I reflect a lot about the traumas that open source (laughs) has laid upon me. But we are doing some open source at AXO. It's AXO.dev, AXO.dev on Twitter. We uh, released (laughs) an image to ASCII generator on Friday just because we're through and around. But if you want to convert an image to ASCII and not get 800 cookies and ads sprayed at you, there's an option there.
0: Here's another question. Not every single open source project wants to die. Just saying, some want to continue and live. You have gone the route of founding your own company, which is not uncommon route. Ava just did that from PSF. Good luck to her. Tracy has a pro and pitcher. There's all sorts of people who go on to do other awesome, cool things. I teach Latin on the side. Going to make millions one day.
2: Do you use Eke Romani? I do. It's the best. Sextus est molestus puer will haunt me forever.
0: So molestus. However, in chapter 12, no, let's move on. Literally did that earlier today. My question for you is for open source projects that have some sort of governance in place that want to go forth and actually get money to pay themselves. So it's not all just an act of service, but becomes an act of serviceable income. What would you suggest that they do to get money to help themselves go forward? Would you suggest that they homogenize themselves and join the LF? Would you suggest that they go and try to find VC money? Would you suggest they set up a foundation and try to join some sort of stable where they can actually have the trademark and IP managed? Or are there other tips that you would have and give to them for ways to become financially viable in the long term?
2: Yeah, so I guess there's two that you didn't mention. And I think these two are what I think are probably the most viable options. So one is get a company that really likes your project and then get them to hire you to work on it. I feel like getting a company to hire you to just do open source is the best of the best. I think that it is very hard. Now, there's obviously trade-offs with everything. I wouldn't be an engineer if I didn't say that there weren't trade-offs. But that feels like the best possible option. The other option is to start a consultancy, potentially. Now, the trade-offs there are you'll get a lot more security working for a large company that's paying you to do open source. You do the consultancy. You probably don't have to fight for weird CLA stuff and something like random issue for them. But I feel like those two options are like really the best ones. And I think you'll note that they're kind of, they're very individualistic options, <laughs> which I'm not super excited about. I do wonder if forming a, I mean, a Galia is a really interesting idea. Is kind of like a collective a co-op that's working on stuff. And so potentially maybe seeing more co-ops spinning up, I think that that could be potentially cool. But I think ultimately the work is either going to be I see work in an ospo at a giant company or like consulting work. As far as the governance stuff, I think the thing that I would say is if you think your project has amazing governance, one, who are you? Two, your governance is probably not good enough to have a ton of money thrown at it yet. Because when you throw money at governance, things gets really serious really fast. So for anyone trying to do any type of fundraising, taking any of the roads that you mentioned, and I think all of them are good. I think they're good in that they're all like equally bad. So this was supposed to be the positive ending. Pay attention to the systems of incentives that you have built in your governance and realize that they will all be like, amplified a ton once money gets thrown at stuff and probably pay attention to like a lot of open source governance is built on this idea of we're all friends here and i feel like just as open source has gone on we've been like oh maybe we're not all friends maybe we do need a code of conduct oh wait we're not all friends oh maybe we do need diversity and inclusive the initiatives oh we're not all friends here maybe we do need to limit the number of leaders in our organization that can come from a single company I think as we're seeing more money shift into open source, that trend is moving in that direction. And I mean, a lot of that friendly cross-boundary collaboration, I think a lot of people push back on a lot of those initiatives because like, that's what they love about open source. And i like, wait, this is supposed to be a group of friends. And I feel like that's something I didn't understand a lot when I first joined. And I was like, we need a code of conduct. And people are like, what? I didn't see them kind of like being sad for a dream that was going away. Like when that happened and now I have that reflection. But yeah, money changes a lot of things and your governance is not nearly as good as you think it is. And you are going to want to work really, really, really hard on it. And obviously the next step there is like, how do you work hard on governance? Like governance is tough. I don't know of a ton of great resources. I feel like maybe Richard or Justin, you have better ones. And also just having governance conversations in your organization is also very hard because you probably don't have governance policies about how you have those conversations. (laughs) (laughs) True that. I think the really, really useful thing to do. And so, I don't know, if I were to start a company or an open source project and try and scale it again, I mean, probably to no one's surprise, I would be really focused on governance and policy earlier. It's not that projects that came before like shouldn't have something wrong but i just think like the era of open source we're in there's the need for more safeguards
0: governance is where it's at now awesome thank you so much it is well in my perspective it's the only interesting topic in open source at the moment like everything else is kind of we're working on it governance is hard but it's also the only interesting topic in human dynamics anyway (laughs) let's move on where can people read all your words and track you down on the web? We know Axo.dev. We know Twitter, AG underscore D-U-B-S. Where else?
2: Well, I guess what I'll say is I don't really talk about this stuff a lot anymore, honestly, because it has caused me a lot of pain in my life. But I have two dogs and I post pictures of them all the time on my Twitter. So if dog pics are where you're at, do definitely check out my Twitter.
0: That is oh, where. totally fine. Most of our listeners actually would prefer if we just made this a dog podcast. So... <laughs> Actually, I for one am so grateful to have had you on. This is great. So check out that Instagram, those Twitter, and axo.dev when it comes out. It's going to be very, very exciting. Before we end, though, we have more to talk about. Yes, that's right. Spotlight. This is the part of the show where we talk about projects, people, or things which have really helped us out, which we think just need a little love. Never doing that again either. Justin, what is your spotlight today?
1: Today, I'm actually going to promote axi.axo.dev. <laughs> It's a image to ASCII conversion without any ads. It's a drag and drop. It's pretty cool. I don't know who makes it, but it's got a dual license MIT and the Apache two. No governance, but hey, screw it.
0: Let's do it. <laughs> that is AXI.AXO.dev. Thank you so much. Don't forget the HTTPS colon slash slash Mine today is actually a yogurt commercial. Chobani has this amazing animated commercial. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It came out a few years ago and it just shows a techno utopia where there's like a girl who like goes and gets yogurt from her mom and there's like wind turbines in the background and solar panels and like hot air balloons and cows hanging out with like linen on the line and Honestly, I get really depressed a lot because as much as I think the open sustainability is a problem, the planet is burning we're all going to die. And that really makes it hard for me to exist in the world. But this yogurt commercial is something I come back to all of the time in my head because it was brave enough to imagine a future where technology and the environment can get along in some format. And it's really, really just beautiful. And I'm literally getting chills thinking about it. And it's a yogurt commercial. And I'm sorry, I just really like it. So the link is in the show notes. Ashley, what's yours?
2: All right. So since you went a little off script of the yogurt commercial, I was struggling with what I was going to talk about, but what I'm going to bring up. So my shout out is for sewingandembroiderywarehouse.com's embroidery troubleshooting guide. This is a old site and the only way you can get to it, I think, is using the internet archive. But what I love about this site is that it has some malformed HTML in it. And so as you scroll down, the text gets infinitely larger, exponentially, and turns into this like really, really kind of beautiful art project. And I used to use this site to teach people HTML by having beginners like visit this and try and figure out what went wrong by being the browser and writing out the HTML and figuring out what it was calculating. I like this because it's from like the old innocent web that I really, really loved, there's no ads on this. I don't know. It's a very simple, just like busted website. And I kind of love it. So that's my job. Yeah. I am a happier, better person because this website exists.
0: <laughs> so aggressive about wrong stitches, though. It makes you scared. It's escalating. Have that's you got, great. Thank you. Man.
2: Where you can only see parts of a letter on a single page. Yeah. It's amazing.
0: <laughs> Hi, right, doves. thank you so much. Listeners, we hope you've really enjoyed this podcast. If you have any thoughts or any feedback, feel free to hit us up at oss.org. That's right. That's our email. You can send comments to us. You can send comments to Ashley as well, or we can send those on if you like. You can also check out more podcasts at OSS.org or wherever podcasts are made, formed, and fomented. If you actually would like to like our podcast when you go to those places, that would be great. That does help us for some reason in the rankings, which is important. I don't know why. Or you could just share word of mouth. That would be really cool. Go to sustainoss.org to learn more about Sustain as an organization. Go to our discourse, discourse.sustainoss.org to talk with other people about open source sustainability models. We do have various working groups, reading groups, and fun times. The design working group is amazing. If you know any designers, please get in touch. If you want to be on this podcast, please email us. And finally, just thank you, Ashley, so much again. This was an excellent podcast. I really enjoyed it. And I hope you have the best of luck with Excelanos and uh, may life be grand. Thanks.